Um, incredible amount uh, God has given us there and the picture of Christ and all that we got to explore over the last four weeks uh, while we were in the book of Ruth. Smart, short book, four chapters, but absolutely packed with a page-by-page page, uh, barn burner of a story. Um, and Ruth's, um, Ruth's heart. I hope you didn't miss it. Boaz's heart. I hope you didn't miss it. What, Lord? 1 Samuel, what? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 is where I want you to settle in. Um, uh, we're going to get a little backdrop here. Um, there were three names besides God's name in Psalm 99 that were read. Does anybody remember what those three names were? Well, Samuel was one of them, I remember. Yes, very good. Very good. Okay, that's a good, that's a good start. There were two other names. Moses and Aaron. There you go. Moses and Aaron. So what tribe were Moses, Aaron, and Samuel from? Why? Because they were priests. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the tribe of Levi, God would choose to be priest for the entire, that, that is their place. When they went into the promised land, they didn't get a, a section of land as a, an inheritance. God gave them cities that the Levites would live in because they would serve God. They were his. They were his inheritance. God chose Moses as a Levite. Uh, Moses was a really good guy, did everything perfect in his life. That's why God chose him, right? No, actually, Moses was a murderer. Murderer. Oh. murderer. Yes. He killed somebody in Egypt. He fled. He ran away. He hid. He spent 80 years out there in the, in the sheep fields or 40 years out in the sheep fields chasing sheep around until he learned how to lead sheep, which is just like leading people, unfortunately, because sheep tend to do the same things people do. And uh, so God put him in the perfect school. He had 40 years of higher education. But uh, then Aaron, who's he in relationship to Moses? His brother. And uh, Aaron, uh, God's, because of Moses' hesitancy, because Moses said, oh, Lord, I can't talk. Oh, Lord, uh, who are they going to listen to? They're not going to listen to me. He came up with four excuses, and God countered each of those. And he said, you know what? Uh, you say you can't talk. Well, you, you just missed out on a blessing because now I'm going to give you Aaron, your brother. He's going to be your mouthpiece. He's going to speak for you to the people. And Aaron became the first high priest uh, as they brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. But uh, that psalm uh, gave us a, an impression. It gave us a position uh, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel all connected with the service of God. And we're going to be talking about Samuel's story, but we're really not going to focus on Samuel. Um, I want you to see the captivity. Uh, I want you to see the backdrop that Samuel was born into. I've heard a lot of people mention in these days that we live in right now with our world the way it is, the way things are. And they say, oh my goodness, uh, I feel bad for anybody bringing a child into this world. And what are they going to have to face? What are they going to be taught? What are they going to do? Uh, we know that in Hitler's Germany, one of the first targets Hitler had was the children. He organized them into social groups, the brown shirts. And he put them out on the streets, the Hitler youth gangs. And he gave them a common denominator. He gave them a function. He gave them a belonging. And they became a tool of his plan that would uh, put Jews in the gas chambers. He used the children of the nation to turn the nation upside down and to kill God's people. Satan uses the same old program over and over again. Satan does the same thing over and over again. We're going to see a generational problem in the book of Samuel, just like we see a generational problem in our world today. There is within our uh, education system within our higher universities we see uh, the product uh, is not one go go be a productive member of your society go be a good family person it's more towards let's go destroy let's tear down and let's do whatever we want to do without consequence and it's sad to see there's more when I worked at Chico State 14 years in and out of the campus buildings, in and out of the teachers' rooms, 
There were more places where you could go for a safe place if you had um, a new identity and gender or you wanted to be uh, identified as uh, uh, some sexual orientation. You could run to somebody's desk and they would protect you and shelter you. If you were a Christian, they didn't want you on the campus. They didn't want to see you. And I remember many times they would run folks off that would come in and try to pass out tracks on the campus. Uh, they'd try to run them off the edge of the school. The guys that would come in and give Gideon Bibles. Has anybody ever been somewhere where you received a Gideon Bible? Yeah. Okay. As a kid in school, Mary and I, same school, Walnut Creek Christian Academy, the Gideons would come in. That was no problem. You know, they'd just come in and it was Bible believing school and they would pass out New Testaments. Uh, now, they're run out of town, they're pushed off the campuses, they're forced out to the streets, sidewalks, and everything else. Uh, America has removed God from our schools, from everything. Go ahead. Yeah, I could carry my Bible to school every day, and we had our Youth for Christ Club on campus. Absolutely. That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> and that has changed. That has changed completely. Uh, we're going to see the effect of what happens sometimes in the next generation in this. So I want to give you a backdrop. And so I'm going to read these five verses, uh, chapter 2, 12 through 17, just to kind of show you what's going on in the time that Samuel is born and, and the captivity that the people are in by their own choice. This is what they brought on themselves. It's not really about an enemy outside at this point, although that will come to play. So let's read these here. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. Some of your Bibles may have, especially if you're in King James, may say were sons of Belial. The word Belial is translated corrupt, worthless, destruction, no profit, uh, wickedness. Sons of corruption. Verse 12. Sons of Eli. Well, we, who's Eli? We don't know. It says they did not know the Lord. And the priest custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would answer him, No, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now, if this was just an isolated incident, that would be one thing. But one thing I haven't told you yet is that Eli is the high priest. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are priests. They're serving in the tabernacle of the Lord, which is at Shiloh, a town about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And this is the house of worship of God. And this is where all the Israelite men would come Three times a year, they would come up and they would sacrifice during the Passover, during Pentecost, and during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the priest had this business going, Hopni and Phineas. By the way, their names are interesting. They're Egyptian names. They're named after areas of the Egyptian gods. Uh, Hopni, his name means tadpole. The frog was a god of Egypt. So this is son of a God, little g. Hopni, this is, the, this is a Levite priest named for an Egyptian God. Does anybody see a little conflict with that? See a little problem. Uh, Phineas, his name means Nubian. And this was also drawn from the Egyptians and the people that they brought in and uh, their description of the people. So Eli has a problem in his house. His sons are running the sacrifice business, and we'll get to that just a little bit further. But the Ark of the Covenant was at Shiloh. So the tabernacle was at Shiloh. And every year, three times a year, all Israelite males were required to come and attend these three festivals, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
And this time frame, right, when this is going on, what we're talking about was probably around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. These guys were robbing God. God had given a rule about a sacrifice. The first thing that would happen was the priest would kill the sacrifice animal. This is an animal we're talking about. A lamb, a sheep, an ox, uh, whatever it was. They would catch the blood. The blood would be poured out as an offering. Then they would burn the fat of the animal on fire. That was God's portion. Then they would take the breast and the right shoulder, and that belonged to the priest. It had already been cooked. It had already been barbecued on the altar, and they would pull off the breast and the right shoulder, and that belonged to the priest. The rest of it was cooked and then would be returned to the offerer in this peace offering. This was, and then they would eat that at the Feast of the Tabernacles. That would be their meal is the sacrificed animal that they had done. But God was first, then God provided for the priest, and then the people received a blessing from the sacrifice that was offered and that sacrificial meal. So Phineas and Hopni, what they did is they circumvented that because if all they get is that breast and the shoulder, I guess they got a little tired of eating that portion. And they wanted to make a little money. So if they get a little raw meat before it got boiled and taken back to the other person, before the fat was ever burned, they would get some and they'd say, hey, you need to give us a little bit more. And the offerer would say, but wait, the law says I need to, it needs to go to the altar and be burned. And that fat needs to be up the sacrifice before God. And they'd say, no, 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 we're doing it our way. We're taking it our way. And then they even made, uh, Hopney and Phineas developed a little three-pronged fork. And they would come and they would dip that out of the pot where the boiled flesh was after the burnt part of it. And they would dip that out and they'd take some more. And they get it right as it hit the pot. So it was fresh. So you know what you can do with fresh meat? You can sell it somewhere else. It's already cooked. It's got to be eaten pretty quick. They don't have refrigeration. They don't have refrigerators. So these guys would take it and go sell it somewhere else. They had them a business running in the house of God. Just like in Jesus' day when he went in and turned over the money changers, they were doing the same thing. But they just had a little different angle. Is they were making sure people bought their lambs and not the ones that people would bring to sacrifice. Same kind of situation. Everybody coming from in out of town. They didn't know what was going on. They get to Shiloh. And these two priests, the sons of the high priest, were scamming everybody. Now that's not all they did. Let's go down to verse 22. I'm going to jump down here a little bit. And uh, we're going to go to verse 22 because it tells us a little bit more about them. Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they, listen here, how they lay with the women who were assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. And if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill him. Um, all the way back in Exodus 38.8, we find out that when the uh, two men that God had endowed with uh, special uh, skills to do metalwork and tapestry work, to build the tabernacle in the first place and woodwork. Uh, God had uh, in given them the spirit of the Lord. Uh, they ended up making the labor uh, where they would wash their hands before the priest would go into the tabernacle. Uh, that was a big bronze bowl. And the foot of it was made, if you look at Exodus uh, 38, 8, it was made from the looking glasses or the mirrors of all the women who were assembled around the tabernacle who would serve, they would do the knitting or the embroidery or the cleaning or the helping and the picking up things, and they stayed around there. In the New Testament, in Luke 2, we find Anna, the prophetess. She is at the tabernacle in Jesus' day, and she serves there. These women were around the tabernacle. Well, Hopney and Phineas decided, guess what? 
there's some gals we can take advantage of. And so they prostituted the women that were coming to serve God. They impressed their priesthood upon them. They decided that they would do that. So we have three things that happen here. And it's interesting because in our day, these same three things happen when it comes to the church and the house of God. It's first of all, theft. They were stealing from God. They were taking what is God's and they were using it for their own gain. Second thing, they turned it into an institution to make money. And the third thing they did is they participated in sexual sin. Now, can anybody think of any headlines that have ever gone up in the newspapers or on TV about some church or some pastor or somebody that finds out he's sleeping with the secretary or he's stealing out of the offering? Has that ever happened before? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Satan doesn't change things much. The temptation's the same. The results are the same. And we find that they crumble. You know, their empire comes apart and falls down. Well, same thing's happening in that day. Saddest thing I see here is that Eli, the high priest, says he's very old. He's about 90 years old at this point is, is what's estimated. Perhaps he shouldn't have been doing the job anymore. Perhaps he wasn't able to pay attention to what was happening in his own house. He just basically uh, turned over the work to his sons and his sons made a mess of things. They were making the people transgress. They were involving the whole nation in dishonesty, in prostitution. They were taking people whose heart was to serve God and they were taking advantage of that in a sexual and evil way. You know, Satan's favorite mimicry often happens at the house of God. Uh, and he uses the same three things that were in the Garden of Eden, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. The same things that were back in the garden, nothing's changed. Satan's a pretty boring dude in terms he doesn't have much uh, uh, imagination. He doesn't think up new tricky stuff. He, and amazingly, us humans, when we don't pay attention to God's word and we're not aware and we don't discern, we can get caught up in his games. A facade. They were running a facade of righteousness, but behind it, it was an evil empire. And this is the thing. Samuel says, I hear. I mean, Eli. He says, I hear, not I see. Well, why didn't he see it? Where was he in the house of God? His job as high priest is to oversee everything that goes on. When God calls someone to lead a church and, and people don't get this, they just think, oh, I, I want to be a pastor. That's a great thing. You know, I'll go get a job as a pastor. I'll get a little certificate on the internet. I'll just become a pastor. There's uh, in the book of Titus, in the book of Timothy, there's a list of qualifications that would make most employment uh, procedures pale because they require not only your skill and ability to do a job but also the integrity of the person behind that and their willingness to follow God's word. And there's a whole list. And if you go through that in Titus and Timothy, people say, well, why, why should uh, you know, there be a limit on who can serve God or who can lead as a pastor, overseer, shepherd? And well, this is why. This is what happens. So into this world, Eli a Levite chosen by God is the person to lead the nation in serving God in the service of God's house. Sorry. Go to sleep, lady. Levi. He's in the line of Moses and Aaron. He's a Levite. He's right from Moses and Aaron. He's in that line where God said, I chose you, Levi. I chose you as a people. You're going to serve my house. And, and we just see this abdication of his responsibilities. He's completely out of touch with what's going on. And so is there captivity in this day? Absolutely, there's captivity. Because what there is is a facade of empty religiousness. There's corrupt leadership in the nation, the judges. Does anybody remember the last verse of Judges, what it says? about how people were acting in this time. It says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, I don't like God's word as a restrictive thing. So I'm going to get outside here and I'm going to do my own little religious thing and I'm going to create my own little religious 
set of principles and I'm going to do my ministry. Is, is That's happened over and over and over again. Phineas and Hopney set up their own religion. But they did it under the facade of God's tabernacle, God, the Ark of the Covenant right there. They're serving at the most holy place. This is captivity. There's an external enemy uh, that's present. We don't see him yet, but the Philistines are outside. And pretty soon the Philistines are going to come and move against Israel. But right now, they're doing this to themselves. Everything that's going on, they're doing to themselves. Why? Because they've not held accountable to the law of God. They've not, as a person, said, wait, this is wrong. Stop. They didn't go to Eli and say, you've got to stop this right now. They didn't require that. Now into this wonderful landscape of life, we get a feller named Elkanah. Turn back to chapter one. I'm gonna read the first eight verses for you real quick. There's gonna be some long names here. I should have Glenn to read it. She's getting good at it. <laughs> now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elahu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite, Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The one, name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So, I specifically, with intention, went and read you the backdrop and gave you a picture of the two dudes, Hopni and Phineas, Because now you know when it says when Elkanah went to sacrifice, Hopni and Phineas were there. And what did they do? They stole the portion of the sacrifice. And it says when Elkanah would bring back a portion of that boiled meat, and he would give it to his family. And part of the feast was you were to eat and to drink in celebration, in happiness, cheer to the Lord. And you can go back and look in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, it tells all about the uh, Feast of Tabernacles and how that was to be carried out. But that's, that's what's going on. Is he would come back home or he would come back to where they were staying in Shiloh and he would have made his offering. Hopney and Phineas would have stole their part. <laughs> he would have brought the rest back. He gave a portion to Peninnah and to her sons and daughters. And then he would give a double portion of that meat, which was the sacrifice, he would give it to Hannah. So he favored her. You see that even though she wasn't producing children for him, uh, there's a couple of things that we see here. Uh, Elkanah, his name means God has possessed or God has created. And did anybody catch the uh, connection to a town we might have talked about over the last couple weeks? Ethramite. It's right there at the end of verse uh, verse one. Ethramite. Where that might that be? Bethlehem. Yeah. Bethlehem. Let me read Micah 5, 2 to you. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though there be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall come one forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Interesting connection is we have another connection back to Bethlehem here. Hem. Did I say it right? Hem. Not ham. Hem. 
is Elkanah and his line. Now, where he lived, the town he lived was to the place Ramathain Zophin is two hills of the watchmen. It's up above the town and it's up high. And uh, But his connection, his uh, coming from is from out of Bethlehem. So that's kind of interesting to see. But now, uh, kind of a funny thing here. Did anybody pick up anything about his house situation? What was going on in his house, Elkanah's house? I read it. If you listened, you should have caught it. Why? Yeah, there's a problem right out of the gate. Now, what's interesting is under the law, it was not an issue. God tolerated that. God allowed that. I mean, we got Abraham. He had a couple wives. We got Jacob at four. Um, God tolerated that for a period. But was that God's plan? No. Not at all. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Harlem. Uh, Harlem. Harlem. <laughs> That'd be a town in Bronx. <laughs> yeah, harem. Uh, is God made one for one. And God gave that picture clearly because the picture of marriage is a picture of God's relationship with us. And uh, where we are his and he is ours. And uh, we don't have, you know, 25 gods that we bounce around to just depending on the weather. As Or as my buddy uh, Shamu would say, 360 million gods for the Hindu is you just pick whatever gods you want to serve. If you want to serve the God of rice today, cool. The God of fire tomorrow, the God of war next day. You just pick around whatever you want to do. 360 million gods, they'll tolerate a Jesus. What's another God? 360 million and one. It's no big deal. It's just an option until you realize that it's all about in Hindu, man getting to God. Whereas the story of the Bible is God coming to man. Completely different. That's the difference between all other religions in the world and the God of the Bible. Is that God came to man. God came to us to establish that relationship. So yeah, he's got a problem in his house. He's got two wives. And uh, he uh, creates a double-mindedness uh, within his house. And even though Peninnah is uh, providing him an heir, is providing him children... Hannah has no children. He's favoring Hannah. Now, thankfully, the Bible does not tell us that Hannah was better looking. It doesn't tell us that Peninnah was uh, skinny or, you know, she had bad eyes like Leah. It tells us that about Leah. She had weak eyes, you know, and Jacob didn't like her quite as much as he liked his gal. So you go through this and what you see is there's conflict in the house. And year after year after year, Peninnah rubs it in to Hannah. Rubs it in. You can't have kids. Look at me. I just had another kid. And year after year, they go to this feast. Year after year, they show up and they're offering and sacrificing. And there's another kid at Peninnah's table. But at Hannah's table, it's just her. At her place, it's just her. And this weighs heavy, heavy upon her. God intended that Hannah, as a wife, should be loved entirely, not separately or partially. Elkanah has a tough job because he's not going to be able to do that to love both fairly. It's just not going to happen. And he demonstrates he can't do it. He demonstrates that because he favors one over the other. He has a problem in the house. Uh, what's interesting is the offering to be consumed. It was that that we talked about, the peace offering, the blood poured out, fat burned. Shoulder and the uh, breast go to the priest. The balance comes back to his house. He gives in verse five that preferential treatment to Hannah and it produces an expected reaction in Peninnah. And she's gonna provoke Hannah. She's gonna use, she's gonna just poke at her the whole time and provoked her severely to make her miserable. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where someone has come after you to make you miserable, to provoke you. And, and there's something to be learned about Hannah here. Because our human response is, I'm going to fight back. Our human response is, I'm going to get a baseball bat and clean up house. It, it, but Hannah's going to show us something about living under someone's um, unfair actions, someone's coarse words, someone's backstabbing. Hannah is going to show us something about God's way through this trial. 
Uh, it's amplified over again by year after year this happens. And uh, Elkanah, you know, poor guy, he's a little dumb. You know, well, why do you weep? Verse 8, why do you weep? What's wrong? What's wrong with you? And I, I kind of wonder if the first thing she said, nothing, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, leave me alone, I'm fine. But it doesn't say that here, so I can't, uh, I can't assume that. Let me go on. 9 to 18. So Hannah arose after they finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept in anguish. There is one of the first key things, this bitterness of soul. Now, get this, this is not a sin. She is not in sin here. She is in sorrow. She is grieved at the continual oppression and the captivity. Folks, uh, in the captivity that we're in, as Bible-believing Christ followers, in a world that is against you, doesn't want to hear about Jesus, this may cause you some bitterness of soul, some sorrow. I mean, people can be in a group and they can talk about the weather. They can talk about the fires burning around us. It's no problem, but bring up Jesus and see what happens. See how quickly, oh yeah, you people believing in Mr. Uh, Spaceman. And, uh, you know, just the derogatory nature of comments that come back and the way people will treat you because you talk about Jesus. You talk about the God, the creator of this universe. You talk about a universe that he created that's not accidental. The fact, I was, Lori and I were just watching something the other day on the human cell. Do uh, you know that in a single cell of your body, there is over two meters of DNA, if you put it strand by strand, back to back, and tied it all together, over six feet long that is packaged in one little cell. It's folded up and put all in there together. And that's just a part of what's there. That's just the DNA, that double helix thing. Um, that There's six feet of that laid out if you laid it out end to end. And then you add in the mRNA, the RNA stuff, and you add in the amino acids, and you add in the, all the communication that is going on inside of a cell. The cell is like a city. They have got some incredible electron microscope pictures. Uh, and it's not just one dimension. It's not just a line in your DNA. It's not because we see these pictures and it's kind of a weird representation. And that's 3D when they show you the double helix and you're looking at that. And, but that's not how it's in the cell. That's not how it's all put in there. And when you look at the cell, it's like this, it's like looking at London from an aerial shot or Paris is just the streets and the houses and everything. And it all functions. It all moves together. There's nothing wasted. There's nothing garbage in there. It's all by God's intention and purpose. Uh, receptors that uh, proteins are generated from and the messenger RNA comes in and connects and tells it to what to produce, and there's multiple connection sites. It, it is far beyond the most magnificent computer that we have on this planet today. We go through huge, enormous levels of control to produce single motions. Well, our body has minimal levels of control in each cell that produce 100,000 proteins to do everything that happens in your body simultaneously in time, 4D, is it moves and it within a single cell, it moves it communicates. and communicates it transports. and transports and sends and communicates to the next cell and it knows what to do. And God created all that. It's not an accident. It absolutely speaks to a design of a creator that is intelligent beyond our intelligence. Man has been working. We tie computer after computer, the craze together. We got the apples and everything, and they put hundreds and thousands of them. And the Linux operating systems seem to be one of the higher operating level systems. It pales. It, it, it's garbage compared to what God has done in a single cell of our body, much less the entirety of our body. I'll tell you when I'm impressed with science. When science can t reach into the brain, into a single cell of the brain and extract a picture memory. When science can go into one cell of your brain 
and with science extract the visual memory that you have in your brain right now that you're looking at me. That's a memory. It's in your brain. You close your eyes, you still see me here because you can have a memory of this moment when science can reach in and find a cell and pull that memory out and recreate it somewhere. I'll be impressed. Right now, I'm impressed with the God who is the creator that holds all this together. How come I don't just fall apart into a bunch of single cells dust on the ground? God took dust and he created this and he makes it work. Incredible God. Go ahead, Paul. It says that we're uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Yes. That's it. One cell. How big is a single cell of your body? How big is one cell? of your body one cell and all that happens in one little cell yeah. my teacher used to say in school if you squeeze your fingers together as tight as you can go uh, atoms could have a ball game in there that could hit the longest hot fly ball ever and never hit the top of the stadium tight as you could squeeze it together we're talking on things on a molecular uh, less than molecular level atomic level go ahead Paul I mean Mark he's got a chain of reaction in there too that repairs and fixes all that DNA if, as in things go wrong with it from nature and from bad things he, there's a repair mechanism and everything that fixes that yep uh, one of my favorite uh, kind of things to in terms of like DNA looking at DNA level uh, those 23 pairs and that helix and all that DNA six foot stuff that's in inside your cell and every cell of your body. Um, there is not a single um, variation of it that creates a better you. Every change where there is a disconnect within the DNA or a something out of the ordinary, it creates a deficit, a disease, uh, inability to do something. It, it, it'll kill you. So the idea of man, oh, we'll just snip it all up, we'll tape it, tape it together, we'll throw it back in you, and it'll work like a champ, is like me going to a nuclear reactor with a screwdriver and say, hey, let me fix it for you. <laughs> okay, would you trust me to do that? I'll just go in there to the control system, get my screwdriver, and just, hey, let's loosen this one, let's tighten that. We'll put those two together. Yeah. No, no. Get a bigger hammer. No. God is incredible. How did we get over to there? I have no idea how we get over there. But when you live in captivity, let me pick back up there. Uh, when you live in captivity, there can be some sorrow. There it is. Now I know how I got there. Is the sorrow of living in a time where you as a believer are an outcast. We're, we're approaching a day, folks. We're on a global level. Uh, you know the talk. Have you heard the thing? If you don't have your little piece of paper... You might not be able to buy or sell. Oh, has anybody ever heard that before in the Bible? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right here. Oh, oh yeah, but pastor, that can't be anything about, uh, you know, that, that's just about getting a, a jab in your arm. That's not anything about uh, uh, religion or anything else. Oh, oh, are you sure? There's a mechanism there. There's a plan there. There's a compromise there. There's an issue of faith. Let me, let me ask you, where does Hannah put her faith? We're going to find out. In bitterness of soul, where she is, she has a lot of roads she'd go down. One, fight back. Fight back. She'd get angry. She could wait until Penina's not looking and put some salt in her coffee. She could short sheet her bed. Has anybody actually ever done that? Short sheet. Well, I found out because I didn't know and I heard about it going to camp and I was like, oh my goodness, what do they do? Well, what you do is you, you remake the bed and you fold the sheet in half so when someone flips it back and tries to slide in, their feet will only go like halfway in. Short sheet. And, and that's a lot of work just to get somebody. I'd rather go in with a couple of fellows, roll them up in their sheets, little duct tape, Oh, wait, wait, I shouldn't. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait, I shouldn't tell all my secrets. <laughs> but <laughs> bitterness of soul. She could have done a lot to fight this back. But let's see where she goes. 
Uh, what verse were we on? Ten. Thank you. And she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed to the Lord. Do you think bitterness of soul can create anxiety? Do you think sorrow about what's going on around you can create anxiety? Absolutely. Positively. What does the Bible tell us elsewhere? Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Hey, that's where she goes. And she went and prayed to the Lord and she wept in anguish. I love that we have a God who forgives. I love that we have a God who hears. I love that we have a God who cares. And her tears were not wasted. Her prayer was not empty words. Her pouring out her heart here was heard by God. Then she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. What's that called? Nazarite. It's Nazarite. Who was a Nazarite from birth? There were three we spoke of. Samson was one. We just finished him a little few weeks back. Who else? John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Samuel. Samuel. Okay. So they would have presented a kind of an interesting picture, all three of them. Uh, hair grown long and everything else. And as it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Now, this is not a reach on Eli's part. His observation, one of the things about the Feast of the Tabernacle that it celebrated was the grape harvest and the wine. And God actually called for the people to be cheerful. He called for them to eat the sacrifice portion, to drink, and to be cheerful before God. It was to be a time of celebration. And the whole focus of Sukkot of the tabernacles is God brought these people out of Israel. He provided them a temporary dwelling. He maintained them. He carried them through the wilderness and he brought them to the promised land. It was to be a time of celebration. It wasn't to be a drunken orgy, but it was to be a time of celebration. And that's a fine line. And, uh, you know, we have uh, both sides of that stick. Thou shalt not touch anything alcoholic and thou shalt drink everything you want. And there's, the truth is somewhere in between. And uh, God told him back in, uh, I don't know if I wrote the passage down here, uh, Leviticus, I believe it is. He said, uh, you know, if you can't make it, you sell the sacrifice and you can buy what you want, wine or strong drink, and, but you will celebrate before me. And uh, it will be a celebration to God. Unfortunately, in Israel today, they have drunken tours that you can take during the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, during Purim too, is you're supposed to drink and get drunk. Well, that's not what God intended for them. It was a celebration of what God had provided an offering to God. He provided the food back to them and they had the food. But so for Eli to look at her and go, oh my goodness, this gal's drunk, was not really that far off because there was probably a lot of people who did drink and he thought maybe one of them had just wandered into the tabernacle and had come to pray. And so he, he uh, makes an assessment. He's a little bit off in his perspective. But um, what's interesting is, listen to what he says to her. How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And here's where Hannah demonstrates some qualities that I think we need to look at is Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for, the, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. So what do you hear in that? What do you hear about her in her answer? She is very respectful. And that respect is born of what in her? Part of her character. 
Put it in another term for me. She has respect. So when you respect somebody, you're placing them where? Yeah, she admired you're placing them above you. She was humble. She had a humble spirit. What could she have said? Listen, I ain't drunk. Why are you accusing me of being drunk? Step over here and we'll do a little fisticuff. You know, she could have gotten really angry. She didn't go to anger. She showed her humility. She showed her respect. What else do you see about her? In this whole process, what do you see about her character? Pen and Oz over there beating on her. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, where did she go? She has a sorrowful spirit. Peninnah sitting there poking her year after year after year after year after year after year, and it's it's wearing her down. But instead of going to some, she could have gone to Eli and Hopnius and probably got him to do a hit. She probably could have got them say, "Hey, take that three pronged fork you got over there, give Peninnah a couple <laughs> ventilation holes." I mean, they'd have been up for it. Look at their character. They'd have done it. But instead, where does she go? She goes to God. She's a godly woman. Her answer is gentle. I like that. Her answer is uh, thoughtful. There's sorrow within, but it moved her to seek God. Our sorrow that we have, our sorrow, what does it do in us? What does it create in us? Does it move us to anger? Does it move us to God? Is it an opportunity to lay it out before God? And, and here's where it gets rough. Here is where the rubber meets the road for Hannah. Eli says to her, verse 17, Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. Okay, and, and when I get to this verse and I get to this point, it always comes back to me, what has changed? Because we're a results-oriented people. We, we like results. We go to the restaurant. We order our food. Do you want to sit there for three hours with no food? What do you want? You put your order in. Don't we expect our food pretty quick? Lickety-split. Come on. I could have been in the drive-thru getting my burger. I came and sat in your restaurant. You got my order. You better get my food. You know, where's my salad? Where's my soup? Bring me my stuff. You know, we have that demand about us. I asked, what has changed? She asked God for help. What has changed? Does she have a kid? No. Nope. Uh, is Peninnah off her back? Nope. Peninnah's back there eating. What's changed? Nothing's changed. She gave it to God. Hear, hear, hear carefully what happens next. Uh, verse 18, and she said, let your maid servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Complete change. She had faith. In who? Eli? Hopney and Phineas? No, she had faith in God. But she did something crazy there is she actually took her request and her sorrow, which is not a sorrow of a minute. It's not a sorrow of a week. It's not sorrow of a day. It's not sorrow of a month. It's sorrow of year after year after year after year after year of the same person picking on her and poking at her and making fun of her and pointing her out as an object of derision. And she took all of that and she packaged it up and she set it down in front of God and she walked away and left it with God. She didn't take it back with her. We always have a choice. Our anxiety, give it to God, prayer and supplication. And then we pick it back up, we run back outside with it. Oh God, how come you haven't handled our anxiety? Learn from Hannah. We need to learn from Hannah. However she did it, I don't know how she did it other than faith. Is she chose to take all that that brought her down, the sorrow that weighed her down, the sorrow that consumed her to this point. Remember, with, in the previous verses I had read, she didn't eat. Elkanah says, hey, am I not better than, to you than seven sons? Am I not better for you 
I, I'm giving you a double portion. I, I, I'm paying attention. You're not doing well. A, am I not being good enough to you? She took all of that. She set it down. Her face changed. And she walked out and she ate the meal. She partook in God's blessing. She celebrated. Somehow she did that. Is she super special? I don't think so. She just, her faith, she decided she chose to trust God. Was it because Eli was a super duper priest and he just gave her confidence to go in and live life without the pain? No, she found her confidence in God. And, and we'll see when we go on, we'll see that in her prayer, um, when God does for her what she asks for God, uh, and she dedicates him to the Lord in, in that prayer, we'll see her confidence is in God completely. It's not in man. It's not in medication. It's not in science. It's not in government. It's not in church. It's not in the church leaders. It's not in the process. It's not in the offering. It's not in the singing. It, her confidence is in God. She didn't find her solution in the Feast of Tabernacles. She didn't find it in the sacrifice. Whatever she found, she found in her conversation with God. And for each of us, that's an opportunity to see her and to ask God to help us be a Hannah. Help us be a Hannah. Because I know that's not our normal reaction most of the time. If someone comes against us and we have sorrow and we have bitterness of spirit and we have anguish and we feel that continual pain and we live under that depression of that, that's not our normal reaction. Hannah found grace in God's sight. She asked for it and she held on to it. There's, there's confidence in that. There's something to build in that. There is something to ask God. Because I know that in all of our lives, there's something we need to leave with God. Uh, the place she left it, in my mind, it's just amazing because her faith was in the God, not in the place of God, not in the church. is Because it was rotten. Everything going on right then was rotten. Matter of fact, in the next couple chapters, uh, we're going to see that God sends the Philistines down and lets them steal the ark, much to their demise. Much to their demise. God's going to let them steal it, but it's judgment against this Israel. Uh, Hopni and Phineas, no mas. Eli, no mas. They ain't going to be around no more. God has chosen a new man, a Nazarite, who will lead, who will stand up, who will carry on from there. What sorrow of bitterness, what heaviness of spirit do we carry unnecessarily? We certainly have enough around us that would impose that upon us uh, day in, day out. What do we have that we need to leave at God's throne? Uh, we'll go, I think we'll pick up from here. We could broach Samuel's birth, but then we get carried away. So we're just going to go ahead and stop here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the opportunity to dig in and to see in Hannah's life a lesson that we all